Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and this year, for the first episode of the year, we're going to be talking with Maddie Kearns, again, of National Review, um, about all kinds of the first the first uh, 10 days so far of, of the new year uh, has brought us a lot of some funny stories, some really outrageous stories. Uh, but let's start out with the outrageous side and talk about um, this this growing problem, not just on the border, which appears to be an open chaos in a way that even even on a baseline of the Biden administration allowing you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people across the border during his tenure, um, but this seems to be hitting um, hitting blue cities now in part because of what. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's New York City street noise there. <laughs> yeah, so um, we're actually going to be talking about about New York City, um, about the migrant crisis in New York City. Uh, I mean, th- this may be the most successful political gambit I've ever seen. But let's start with the the basics, Maddie. What's what's going on uh, right now with regard to the migrants in New York City? And have you? I mean, have you up there? You're you're in a different part of town than I am, but have you encountered it personally or? I mean, it's hard to miss, honestly. Uh, so Eric Adams, uh, New York City's mayor, is has has been distressed about this for for a while now. And part of the problem, of course, is that uh, red states are bussing uh, migrants, which, as you as you referenced, was a very smart political move because you can no longer pretend that this is only a border state red state problem. This is now a nationwide problem and New York City can't cope. It also had a number of laws on the books that made it the city's legal obligation to house, shelter, feed these migrants. And uh, both both the mayor and and the governor of New York are seeking to address this because it's completely unsustainable. Uh, So unsustainable, in fact, that not only are hotels being used for, for migrants, but, and, and I have seen that personally, I've kind of walked past big long lines of, of people outside of hotels taken over by the city, but also now schools. We've had uh, this new report in the New York Post about a, sco- a local school that's been uh, made remote. So the pupils are having to learn remotely so that migrants can be, can be sheltered in the school. So talk about the local residents sort of feeling the ill effects of this and suffering because of this. I mean, the city is overwhelmed. It's, as I say, unsustainable. And there is a political cost to it because regardless of whether you're on the left or the right of the issue of immigration, what you don't want is for your city to be overwhelmed and for your your own uh, children's lives and your your lives to be disrupted in this way. Yeah, it's hard to think of something more symbolic um, in terms of the priorities of the American government, right, than uh, forcing after, you know, a disastrous sort of brush with going remote after the pandemic and the consequences that that created for, you know, millions of American children who are behind. And and, I mean, I don't want to be doomer about it, but we'll probably never catch up. I mean, all the data that we have says that this generation of children will never catch up academically um, to what was already a very low standard. And now um, the school is asked to be going remote so that the school facilities themselves can be used to house migrants. I mean, it's it's a it's hard to think of a more um, sort of blatant symbolical gesture, symbolic gesture from the government about, you know, who really matters. and, and telling its own citizens, essentially, this doesn't matter. It, it's It's been, like I said, this very successful gambit because it's now self-perpetuating. The first few busloads of migrants um, from Governor Abbott and from um, Governor DeSantis down in Florida, right, um, those were sort of the, the political stunt that highlighted very well the fact that these people are nimby about it, right? It's all about Sanctuary City and, and um, you know, the, Texas and Florida and Arizona and other border states are evil racists because they don't want to welcome people from around the world constantly in such large numbers um, who cause incredible chaos, uh, crime and disorder on the border. Um, they're they're just racist. But now that it's it's coming into New York City, um, coming into uh, Martha's Vineyard was one of the first uh, places that, that DeSantis blessed people. So at first it was kind of this political stunt and people you know sort of um the chattering classes were very much against it and they said you know this is this is just a political stunt with people's lives this is horrible um but it did demonstrate what was 
the obvious hypocrisy in a way that I think no amount of telling rather than showing could. And then now it's self-perpetuating. So apparently there are people crossing the border and they're saying Roosevelt Hotel, Roosevelt Hotel, right? That's where they want to go because New York City has, as you say, and the state have all these laws on the book saying we have to give you a bunch of free stuff. And so people are coming. It's self-perpetuating. Um, there, there is a migrant shelter several blocks away from me. Um, and there are some very interesting crime alerts coming up. 300 people fighting in the street, for example. Um, the part of the park that I live nearby, I mean, it, it feels very, very different. The only thing I can compare it to, and it, it's still a very small corner of the park, but as more people come, it'll, it'll grow. You know, like there's pieces of the park that feel kind of like at East Jerusalem, where um, in that case, it's, it's uh, Arab Muslims in, in um, that part of, of Jerusalem and Israel. Um, but here it's, it looks like mostly North African uh, Muslims and otherwise coming from North Africa. And there's just a, like relations between men and women that are not Western. It's right. very uncomfortable walking by because they treat you like you're a prostitute selling your wares, like if you're in jeans and a sweater. Right. Um, and, and so it's just, it's a very obvious culture, culture clash going on that I think is only going to get worse. It's only a matter of time before there's some very serious crime coming out of these migrant centers, in my, my opinion. Um, but yeah, now you have this, this school. I mean, where do you think they go from here? Because Adams has spoken out against his own party on this. He's been quite public about it. And you know that if he's being public about it, he was very vociferous behind the scenes about it. Um, even the governor now uh, is starting to completely lib governor is starting to, to agitate about it. I mean, do you think that there's anything that can be done internally in the Democratic Party? Do you think this, because as you said, this is something that, that people are genuinely pissed off about. You, know, you can talk about blue cities all you want, and New York does, of course, lean left. But there is something about New York kids being forced to work remote or to, to um, learn remote because their places are quite literally given to migrants, busloads of migrants that are come, more of which are coming in every day that tends to crystallize politics a little bit. I think that's true for local politics. So I think uh, cities like like New York, um, Democrats can see the problem. And it's a number of, of just practical problems. It's, it's problems to do with resources. And you're going to see them advocating for change. Of course, what they see as the solutions is like federal government give us more money. And I don't think what, what you're not seeing is is them saying to Biden, you need to basically fix the border. Um, and the reason the Democrats don't want to fix that problem is it suits them. And it's this has been a case with the Democratic Party for a very long time. I was recently at the Tenement Museum in the Lower East Side, and uh, it was really interesting. It was I went to go see this apartment that had been lived in by a family that came over from Ireland right after the, the famine in the 1860s. And interestingly, you know, this, this was a time of high immigration to the United States, but it was a time of legal immigration. And the difference is that people were coming without any expectation that they were going to get government handouts. It was, you know, you could come and you could live in a hovel, basically, and, and slowly build yourself up through social mobility, through generations, so that your children and grandchildren would have a better life than you did. But you, you know, there was there was no welfare system at the time. Now, they quickly ran into problems with this because people did get sick and they didn't have enough money. And who stepped in? It was Democratic politicians. And they weren't doing this out of some sort of uh, great love of their fellow man. They were doing it because they saw political opportunity you know, with Tammany Hall. And, and there was a lot of corruption in that as well. And so they saw that immigrants were, were useful to them, especially immigrants who could be brought into the political system, giving voting rights. Um, and I think that I think that is a big part of this. And sometimes you have Democrats who who say this fairly openly. You know, this this is part of their demogra <clears throat> demographic strategy. Um, and the, the, the problem is that the, the people who really suffer from from this type of approach are, in fact, uh, other other than obviously uh, the, the natives are, in fact, legal immigrants. I'll, I'll give you an example of what, what I mean. So in the United Kingdom, we have a similar problem. Our version of the 
the, the border crisis is uh, these boats coming across the channel. Um, and what's important to understand about a lot of the people coming across the channel is they're not actually directly coming from uh, from countries that where they would need to seek asylum. They're coming from France, right? So why why do they have to move? At that point, they've become, even if they were originally asylum seekers, they've become economic migrants. It's better. The, the UK just has a better welfare system. This is this is part of the uh, appeal. Anyway, in, in an attempt to, to stop this problem, the UK government, which is nominally conservative, has, uh, has, has actually failed at, at their scheme that would have actually uh, achieved this because what they wanted to do was send migrants to uh, a third country, which is less appealing. So they, they struck up an agreement with Rwanda, where um, these, these migrants would be taken to Rwanda and they would have their asylum claims processed there. Um, this got struck down by the UK Supreme Court because of international human rights laws, which, which make this sort of impossible. So what they did instead was they decided that they were going to curb legal migration and included in this are um, British citizens and, and, and including born and bred British citizens who want to bring over their foreign born spouse. So I have a friend in Madrid whose husband is Spanish. And since since Britain left the EU, you can't just live in other European countries. And they would need to be making more money than they currently make for them to be able to live in the UK, for her to be able to bring her spouse. And, and you think at that point, you think, look, the whole point of being a citizen is it's supposed to confer certain rights and privileges. And so so just, just think of this, how maddening this is for people who live in the UK. They can't, unless they make uh, a certain, you know, a middle class income, they can't bring their foreign born spouse to the UK. And yet, here's all these illegal immigrants who come, they, they, don't, they don't pay taxes, they, you know, clog up the, the National Health Service, um, and, and nothing really is being done to address that problem. And yet, nominally, for appearances sake, we're just going to, you know, tweak legal migration as if that actually addresses the problem and you know every every time this this border crisis gets worse you will see the reactionary strand on republicans where it is actually just easier to control no surprises here it's easier to control legal migration so it's easier to to bring down those numbers and so you end up with this like complete mess where where nothing actually gets addressed and that that is my concern here too and obviously i'm completely (laughs) self-interested uh being an immigrant but but still what i'm saying is still true even though i'm i'm biased yeah i mean I, i'm getting pretty reactionary on some of this there's there's also the the idea of who exactly is coming so what's striking me as i interact more with the migrant crisis in new york just on a personal level is how much more it feels like the european migrant crisis than it has felt like the past three decades of um, illegal immigration, essentially from Mexico and Latin American countries, uh, in part, you know, and and I, I was against it for reasons of of law and order as well as for reasons of of demographic uh, shift. Right? Um, it it it. I guess it, it doesn't say anything bad about uh, people that if you let in millions and millions and millions of them at the same time, right? Uh, you you do have a culture culture change, you have mass demographic change. It just sh- does shift the politics. And if people don't believe that that's true, which I find it absurd at this point in time that nobody would believe that that's true, you know, think about like if you if there were 350 million Frenchmen in the world, um, I don't know what kind of world that would look like, but <laughs> I don't. There aren't that many of them. But let's say that there were, you know, if, if we added 350 million uh, Frenchmen to the United States, everyone instantly recognizes the United States would become something much closer to France, right? Um, culturally, but so at some point, I, I do think that sheer numbers is is an issue, and you need to have both an orderly and, and a level of my of immigration that um, that that is absorbable. And then, of course, we now have this even higher order problem where we don't know what we're assimilating immigrants to. I, I actually do think um, the, the Mexican immigrants who are coming across the, the border, they and their children actually do assimilate to American culture in a sense. Um, but we don't know what that means anymore. Um, so in any case, all of uh, I'm not downplaying the the crisis of the last three decades. All of that to say, um, in, in the United States, but but uh, Catholic Mexican 
day laborers are still not so wholly at odds with American culture as, uh, you know, North African Muslims. Um, Europe has had a much more difficult cultural crisis because the, the migrants coming to Europe are further apart from the cultures that they're entering into. And the UK is in this boat as well. Whereas America, I mean, I, I think in terms of who was coming, we were fairly lucky um, in terms of, of bringing in tons of people. There, there was actually the, the Mexican immigration here reminds me and the Latin American immigration here reminds me in many ways of the um, Irish and Italian migration that you're, uh, you're referencing in that there's sort of the vast bulk of people who are really coming to earn money and, and, and to work. Um, and sometimes very poor families with many, many family members living in one apartment, et cetera. Um, but they're fundamentally here to work. Uh, and then, <laughs> and, but then there's like a small percentage who are involved with violent and organized crime. And that becomes like the story. Right. And, and I think actually it's quite similar to Italians, um, thinking about the Sopranos, right. Uh, the, the Italians being offended, even the ones in the mob are offended by the connections to the mob. Right. But the reality is there was this, um, you know, imported organized crime with large Italian immigration. Um, but in any case, that's, that's kind of what the, the original migration crisis in the United States immigration crisis has looked like for many years. This is different. Um, these are just simply different people. The, the, the message has gone out to the world. You can get across the American border in this way. Um, so we are not, I mean, I, I, I'm walking around. Most of the people in these migrant centers are not Latin. They're not Latino. They're not coming from Latin America mm -hmm. or from Mexico. Um, so they're coming from much longer distances. And of course that also raises the disturbing question of who else is coming across the border. We've had a couple of high profile incidents of catching people on terror watch lists. Um, that's only the people we caught. So there, there, there is this like feel to it that I know last time you were on with me, we were talking about the protests in the UK of essentially um, either immigrants or, or first generation people who are, so foreign uh, to the values of what you would think the United Kingdom stands for and what its leadership keeps saying, for example, about the Israel-Gaza conflict. I mean, I feel like we're more directly headed in that direction with this current round of, of migration. I don't know. What have you noticed like uh, in the migrant centers that you walk by? Do you see like a lot of people from Latin America or do you see a lot of people who look like they're either from North Africa or from um, the Middle East or... I think I've noticed a mix. I mean, I have I have noticed a lot of um, migrants from from Latin America, but I think I think you're absolutely right that it's it's changing. And you know, you mentioned crime. I, I think it was 13 people who were apprehended on the terror watch list in 2023. And to your point, those are the ones that were caught. Um, you know, 13 doesn't seem like a lot, but they're terrorists that we're talking about. Um, and then I think the the uh, figure for of uh, criminals caught again of those that were caught was 35,000. So it's not to say that obviously it's not to say all immigrants are, are criminals and people who come from other cultures are, are all violent and depraved. But the point here is that a country has a right to decide who it lets in. And when people come here illegally, they have the country has absolutely no say in who's coming in. Um, and, and this is a huge problem. Now, it, in Europe, what's happened is that because it's of its crisis of cultural identity, I, I mean, I don't, if you'd asked somebody 100 years ago, what does it mean to be British, they could have given you a very clear, um, like, idea and articulation of it, and they would, chances are, likelier than not, be very patriotic. Now, what does it mean? Really not, not clear at all. And so you're right, people come from other countries and they come because of practical reasons. They've got the, the welfare system, you know, free education, free health care, possibly even, you know, help with, with housing and, and shelter. Um, but, they, but they retain their ideological commitments of their home culture. They retain their, uh, their prejudices. And listen, we all have prejudices. Some are sinister, some are less so. Um, but they retain those, and it's it's not actually all that surprising that in that in these sort of subcultures within the the amorphous 
poorly defined main culture, you have uh, radicalization happening. You have um, Islamist uh, terrorists who who kind of have a crisis of meaning, but they've they've got the appeal of of this um, this radical extreme viewpoint. And it it you know it, it has been a huge problem in Europe. But we we know that we've had uh, it just every every few years there's a major terrorist incident, and everybody goes, wait, how did this how did this person get here? Um, there was a case in in I think it was Sweden of um, a Tunisian asylum seeker who'd, who'd actually originally gone to Belgium um, and had his uh, asylum claim denied. And then the Tunisian authorities actually got in touch with the Belgian authorities and said, this guy is uh, was escaped from, from our prison. He was serving um, a long sentence for attempted murder. Could you send him back? And then they just lost, lost sight of the process. He ends up going to Sweden, killing people at a soccer game, and then the the Belgian uh, the Belgian justice minister, I think, ended up having to resign over this terrible scandal. But it's just a it's just an illustration of what happens. Um, you know, and there's and this is this is well documented in the US as well. People uh, are are told, okay, like you're here now. Guess there's nothing we can do about that. Could you show up for a hearing for, to process your asylum claims in ten years? Oh, great. Like, it takes 10 years to figure out like whether you're who you say you are, um, whether you're you know going to, to be able to contribute to this country or whether you're, you're going to uh, be a threat to, to, to this country. That's just not acceptable. And, and people can see the effects of that. Um, and if, if immigrants can't assimilate, if they can't, uh, if there isn't a, a common unifying narrative or theme to, to bind everybody together, then it's just it's just a disaster. It's a disaster waiting to happen um, in terms of national security, but it's it's just actually a disaster for being able to to function as a society. Um, and there's the practical elements which we've we've discussed, um, but there, but there's also just like who are we and what are we about and and what is this country? And I I, I think that that's what um, has really gotten out of hand in Europe, possibly. I hate to be pessimistic, but possibly to the extent that it's too late now, um, and it's it's it disturbingly looks like America is going the same way. Yeah, there's the, there's this attitude of just throwing up your hands like it's an unchangeable reality, and and I think part of that, first of all, is evidence for that. I mean, I, I can't think of anything um, more depressing than the fact that after nine eleven, which was a immigration failure, right? These were terrorists overstaying on visas, um, was an immigration failure. Not only was there any kind of, was there no systematic review, um, immigration, my understanding is since 9-11, immigration from Arab and Muslim countries has actually gone up in the intervening decades, right? Um, which just speaks, I mean, maybe, I'm not saying this like this is like obviously not everybody who comes here is responsible for for what um, Osama bin Laden did on on 9/11, but like the, the the sort of sheer stepping back and like looking at we haven't even had a discussion about it, mm-hmm. right? There's not even been this sort of society wide discussion like is this good or bad for America? Should we be bringing in more people from this part of the world or not? I mean, there, there hasn't even been a review of it um, in, in the public, and then like consistently in in almost every poll and it's something that doesn't get remarked on even when mainstream media outlets publish these polls they just don't remark on it so you know typically especially in this election what do you see as like sort of number one issues you see econ- economy inflation right sometimes foreign policy issues if they explode up into uh, no pun there um explode up into uh the the, the consciousness of americans you see but what is almost always second third or fourth Immigration, consistently, over and over and over again. And when you pull Americans on immigration, something like 70 or 80% say they want less immigration. That's not even an option in our political like tableau among the, the different options between Republicans and Democrats. That's not even a view that is effectuated by either party. And, and this, this immigration failure is just, it, it is a condemnation of our entire political system because there's an element of it that belongs to each of the branches of government, right? So I just said that the two parties, the party system is not addressing this, has not addressed it for, for at least three decades. It's not even like they don't even have a plan. There's not even like, oh, there's one side that says 
we're going to do, you know, we're going to, here's X is a problem. We're going to do Y about it. And the other side says X is a problem. We're going to do Z about it. Right. There's not even that kind of discussion the way there is over tax cuts or um, even some more cultural issues like the trans issue or whatever. There's clearly two sides and they're battling it out. You don't even get that sense with immigration. Um, that there are two sides and they have different views of the problem and they have different solutions and they're going to battle it out in the, in, in the democracy, right? You don't even get that sense with, with us. And then in terms of these failures, our asylum laws obviously need to be rewritten. Um, it's just like it, nobody, I mean, unless exactly what you're saying, if, if the purpose is to let in as many people as possible under basically false pretenses, like that's that's what we're we're doing. There's no universe in which our asylum law was meant to enable mass migration from all over the world. It was a targeted law. So, you know, you have things that Congress needs to do and hasn't addressed. You have an executive branch that even when the Trump administration was doing its best to uh, enforce the border, right, had to rely on all kinds of wacky, like, um, until recently, like Title 42, right, under the pandemic, uh, emergency titles, to deport people because the structure of the law and the number of, of administrative law judges and et cetera, et cetera, immigration law judges that we have, they're not able to cope with the volume. So you have to basically like finagle some sort of legal structure out of emergency orders and executive orders and, and quasi legal pronouncements. Right. Um, and then the judicial branch has this Flores settlement, which is responsible for, people starting to drag kids as their ticket into. So whatever the American legal system does, it seems like it ripples out in the world. A big sign goes up and says, this is how you get into the United States. Um, and, and it causes problems. So like there's, there's no part of government that has functionally dealt with immigration. Even if you're, let's say your view is we need to let in a lot more people, right? Even that there, there's no functionality to the system in that way, if our goal was to actually process all these people and, you know, screen out terrorists or whatever minimalistic conception you might have about immigration, our system isn't able to do that. Um, and it's just this like failure that everyone just sort of throws up their hands and says, well, oh, this is just how it is. And I, I and it seems clear in polls that people are deeply dissatisfied with that attitude, but it seems like nobody, I mean, this is obviously, mm. I guess Donald Trump said something about it, but he, he didn't do much about it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those problems that it's so time consuming and expensive and difficult to to fix that politically it's actually more useful to be able to play the blame game. Um, and, and you, you know, you, you see this with with I mean, it's not a coincidence that things have gotten worse under Biden, of course. I mean, his rhetoric messes with the incentive structure. I mean, these are human beings. They have the same sort of incentives that we all do. And if you make it sound like everybody's welcome, come on in, that's that's what's going to happen. Whereas if, you know, you've talked about some of the, the um, insufficient measures that Trump took, but part of that was actually symbolic. You know, we're going to build a wall. I mean, obviously that didn't that didn't happen. Um but, but that was his message to the world was we we've got a wall we're we're building a wall like don't come uh, you know tell your friends tell your relatives not to come either and I mean that's it's better than it's better than nothing but it does it causes a lot of deep resentment I think I think something you said is just completely true and I, I think it very true in, in relation to Europe is nobody asked us this this causes so much resentment in in people being told. Um, or, or people being able to see even that their society and culture is completely changing um, around them. And then any time they express discontent with this or even ask questions about it, they're, they're told, don't be, you know, don't be such a racist. Um, and, and, and treated that way by, by politicians as well who are, supposed, who are elected to represent their interests and take seriously their concerns. Um, and it, it is in it is in that context that you do see uh, genuine sort of bigotry to, towards uh, towards immigrants, but but you can kind of understand how it how it begins, um, because th this is just something that they didn't vote for, they didn't ask for, and understandably now your kids are, uh, are learning remote. Right now your kids are are learning remote. I mean. How how is it if if what you're trying to do is to try and 
make people more positive <laughs> towards immigrants and and everybody get along better and, and unite the country. This is this is the exact opposite of that. This is how to make people hate each other. Yeah, certainly working on me. Um, so let's let's talk about something else in New York City. This is the New York City episode, but I, I do think these are stories with broader import. Um, we've had a series of. First of all, it seems like now the the pro Palestinian protests are. I predicted this, I think, three or four weeks ago already, maybe six weeks ago. That these are this is now the it's sort of a low level BLM now, right? These th- these protests are they're significant. They they go on every. Um, like every weekend, more or less, in in many major cities, they seem coordinated, um, and they're now openly flouting any number of laws to the point of of absurdity. Right. So we in in recent weeks we saw before Christmas and after Christmas the attempt on two different coasts to shut down LAX and JFK simultaneously and completely foobar the American airspace uh, during Christmas travel. Fortunately, that that didn't succeed. But the groups here were launching uh, balloons into the airport airspace, which you can imagine, you know, if something like that pops up on the radar, the whole airport has to be shut down and they have to investigate what that is. And then now, most recently, um, in just a few days ago, they shut down simultaneously the Manhattan Bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge, and Holland Tunnel, um, which, as you can imagine, completely locked up traffic in, in Manhattan. Um, it seems to me that it's only a matter of time before somebody dies. Perhaps somebody already has um, from this because out of the – when you're talking about stopping at some point hundreds of thousands of people, one of them is going to really have – it's not just going to be an inconvenience, right? It's going to be – a, ma- a matter of life and death, a life and death situation. It's going to be an ambulance headed to the hospital. It's going to be somebody going to like pick up their kid from a bad situation or something like that. Right. Um, and perhaps that already has happened and we don't know. So it seems like these protests are organized. It seems like they're continually coming out. They seem almost less and less connected to what's actually happening in Gaza. Um, and in, in, by that, I mean it, it's not like these protests get worse when there's sort of a, a hot piece of the war. And then if things quiet down, like during the hostage, hostage exchanges, they didn't, you know, quiet down. They don't, they don't seem like related. And of course, if you talk to these people, half of them don't know which river, which sea, like this has just become a current thing on the left. There's this, this toxic combination of, of the issue we've just been discussing, which is migration and immigration. So of, of recent, Muslim immigrants to the United States from Arab countries who have, uh, you know, their their prejudices against Jews and Israel and are acting them out in sometimes violent ways. Um, but then there's there's sort of the other half of it, which is the domestic homegrown, the kids from NYU. Right. Um, I think this was perfectly illustrated. There were two protests going on. This is four or five weeks ago. There were two protests simultaneously going on, one in Bay Ridge, which is where the Palestinian uh, community in, in New York City largely resides, and that was all Palestinians um, protesting. And then simultaneously, there was a West Village protest under the banner Queers for Palestine, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these are, you know, people say these two things are incompatible. I, I think they're perfectly compatible. They hate the West, and they hate America, and they hate Israel. And that's the, the primary linkage between those two. And if you think about it that way, I find it much less puzzling. But in any case, there are these these two halves of it, the domestic and the sort of I don't know if you want to call it foreign since it's clearly domestic now, but it is in some fundamental sense foreign to the United States. This hasn't stopped and it's getting worse. There were some number of arrests made in, in the tunnel. We'll see if those people get prosecuted or whether they have any substantial punishment for shutting down the, the, the tunnel like that. Um, I don't know. What do you, where, do you, where do you think this is going? Because 2024 is, is not going to be a protest-free year, one suspects. Well, I think that they need to reform uh, the justice system such that people who who do this level of disruption are severely punished for it. Um, I think I was reading that that of the 350 who were arrested in, in the protests you were referring to, I think the vast majority got tickets for misdemeanors and they were to you know show up uh, at some point a few weeks later. The, the problem that happens with taking a lenient approach to these people is that they just keep coming back. They just keep doing it. Um, this happened in the in the UK with the Just Stop Oil uh, 
activists in that this the same people who were um interrupting uh like a, a performance on broadway would then three weeks after being arrested and given a slap on the wrist they then you know be the person throwing tomato soup on some fine work of art and i think you just need to like punish jail time actually i think that would be enough of a deterrent to stop this i mean these people are not interested in persuading anybody this is obviously not how you persuade people this is the way to make people hate you in fact there was the uh i think it was it in canada where there was one of these just up oil um protesters and somebody got out of a car and shot them um obviously not not justifying <laughs> but vigilante uh killings of people but but the, the point being this does not win anybody to your cause they're not interested in winning people to their cause this is a display of power um people having the power to to inconvenience other people or as you say worse um so i think that the only way to deal with this is to be super tough make clear that yes you have first amendment rights but that does not include the right to disrupt destroy vandalize infrastructure um and if you do any of those things then you will be inside uh prison yeah i mean you're so right that this is i mean there's already that viral video of, of that guy trying to pick up his daughter in brooklyn and just shoving these people out of the way i mean they're you feel the same sense with uh some of the like the crime issues and and that people at some point like when the rule of law breaks down people take matters into their own hands this is part of the reason why maintaining the rule of law but i mean since 2020, I've just come back over and over and over again to uh, the Lyceum Address by by uh, Abraham Lincoln, and it's just it's, it it seems to fit so well over and over. And even in the immigration issues we were discussing for the last half hour, mm-hmm. seems to fit so well with our current age, which is that the law abiding, the citizen, the like the people who are sort of quote unquote the good guys, right? The people who are supposed to be the, the ones who are building society, paying the taxes, like not committing crimes. Um, those those people seem at the end constantly to get the short end of the stick behind people who have illegally entered the country, people who are are willing to block traffic illegally, right? People like there there is this this sense that the system is is coming in on behalf of essentially antisocial behavior and at some point the 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 people who are doing everything right are going to throw up their hands and start to behave the same way and i think that's probably a better explanation for january 6th than anything else by the way um it, and the reason that we find it shocking is suddenly protesters on the right started behaving like protesters on the left Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in this this completely naive fantasy land where they, they believe the same slap on the wrist would be applied to them um, as had been applied to leftist rioters and, and um, for, for the past, you know, eight months before that that incident. And at some point, people like are not going to play by the rules if they are constantly punched in the face for playing by the rules. Like this is basic one on one human nature. You can't. Ha- maintain any sort of, of law and order without incentivizing law and order. And in fact, by aggressively incentivizing the opposite. Yeah. I mean, you even see that in the in the political system, uh, in, in that Trump was very much an expression of, of what of what you're talking about. I mean, there was a piece uh, a few weeks ago by I think Robert Kagan saying, you know, Trump is Trump is a dictator. And if it was like a very long piece in the Washington Post, maybe 6,000 words. And it was basically like a piece of pure projection. It was like, you know. I read that piece, yeah. It was like, it was like a list of things that they'd done to us for the last exactly. years. Exactly. Total gaslighting. I mean, like, you know, by by that measure, we should be calling Biden a dictator for his, for his you know, attempt to uh, cancel student loans using executive power or, you know, even what's going on at the border, frankly, um, or using the the Justice Department to go in this partisan um, witch hunt of of Trump. I mean, these are the things that they're worried, like, oh, if he gets in. And and listen, maybe they're right. Maybe he'll be like, you know what? It's time for revenge. I'm going to do everything you just did. Like, and and that would not be good, to be clear. That is not good. That's degradation of the system. But you understand how it happens, right? And yeah, at a certain point, people say, you know what, being decent and following the rules and law and order is just not working for us anymore. So let's just burn the whole thing down and, and try and do it our way.
Yeah, I mean, this really resonates with me as a Californian or former Californian. Um, like the the government of California seems to consistently screw the middle class in in California and the people who are paying the bulk of the taxes, even in a very progressive tax system. Um, the people who are are like doing everything right and and um, law abiding. And at some point, people just leave. But of course, it's much more complicated. You can't just like abandon your country. It's a different thing to, to move from California to somewhere else. But you can't just abandon your country in the same way, or or you can, but it's it's you know, it's it's got all kinds of other considerations, right? Um, and it, it even it, and it strikes me that even sometimes these things can come under different ideologies, right? So yeah. to the extent that there is anything um, in California that is not super super left wing. Um, you get like, for example, libertarians arguing against Prop 13, which is the all California taxes across the board are extremely high, as, as one might imagine. All the state taxes, the income tax is very high. The, you know, the sales tax is very high. The property taxes are controlled, relatively speaking, by this proposition, Proposition 13. There's a corporate piece to it. There's a, a individual piece to it. Um, but basically, it requires a very high threshold, I think it's two-thirds majority, um, to raise property taxes, um, or sorry, to raise taxes overall. I, I don't know. i I'm, I'm been away from California too long. But the piece of this that people attack sometimes is it means it was, it was put in place to basically solve a problem, which is property values skyrocketing in California meant that there were a lot of older people, a lot of them on fixed income, who had, had paid off their houses bought the house outright, right? They had done sort of the right thing as American homeowners, but because the property under them was escalating in value, they weren't able to afford the property taxes because they didn't have, they, they were, you know, they had the house, but they weren't rich other than having the house. And so because a lot of grandmas were being turned out of their property that they had bought and paid for and sat on for decades, right? Um, they, they put in place this rule where, Basically, there's an escalation and you kind of stick where you, your, um, your original value of your property is and there's sort of a formula. And you, it doesn't even prevent the property taxes from going up. What it prevents them from doing is spiking radically, mm -hmm. right? So all of this to say is that California has middle-of-the-pack property taxes. Um, it's not even low property taxes in terms of other states. It has middle-of-the-pack. And yet I hear from like libertarians, for example, they're like, oh, well, this is not, you know, free market. This, you know, this has all these sort of down market effects and it's interfering with the market of housing. And yeah, that's, that's all true. But when you zoom out and imagine how much that family has been screwed by the California system, it's like the one thing that slightly tilts the system in their favor is considered the worst thing in the world and the focus of, of part of the right in in California. And then at that point, you know, you, you're justified in saying like, nobody's, nobody's here for me. Yeah. None of these people want, you know, the, the middle-class American family to be able to come together, to form, to begin with, to be able to buy a house, to be able to raise children, to be able to like live a law-abiding life and not, you know, to have to, to live in a sort of quasi prison environment where you have to ring the bell to get your toothpaste uh, because we won't put criminals in jail. So we're going to put you in a jail-like environment, you know? Um, it's just, th th there is this like tipping point for a lot of people. And I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's optimistic. Maybe people just get used to things getting worse and worse and worse. Well, I think, <laughs> I think they do, but it, it's actually, and I, I don't know if we're um, going to, going to touch on this, but it kind of touches on um, the, the idea of like, what what the right should do to respond to to problems that it, it sees so like should should they be aggressive culture war um tacticians or should they be responsive and just wait for for the left to attack and then them get into sort of a defensive posture um and i, th I think this is obviously we've seen this recently with um chris rufo and he's articulated this. Am I sort of getting ahead of what you were? No, no, no. You're, you're good. Okay. okay. But, you know, with the um, the the, Claude, the removal of Claudine Gay, the ousting of Claudine Gay, and Chris Rufo did a very unusual thing in that he uh, narrated this in, in real time. And he suggested that this is the way to go. This is how to um, purge, <laughs> like, left-wing institutions that have become 
corrupted. And this is contra- controversial, like even even on the right, because there are people who are very ideologically pure about how things are supposed to be done. We, we saw this uh, with with Disney, uh, with the debacle with with uh, DeSantis. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to know where where you come down on that. I almost unequivocally come down on Chris Rufo's side almost every time. I, I can't think of somebody who has had more and more substantial victories for the right uh, since I have followed politics. I, I He's been on this podcast a couple times, like uh, I consider him, you know, sort of colleague, friend. Um, I, I, I've seen on both sides, like sort of the critique of Chris Rufo, right? On the one hand, there's the critique you just pointed to, which is people uh, sort of ideologically nitpicking the solutions that he puts forward, which I think he has the better argument. I and mean, one of the the ones you, you hear all the time is about the the um, curriculum restrictions, for example, in schools. And um, I, I mean, it's, it, it is it is amazing to me how cabined by the 1960s the right sometimes is, as in they think of liberalism, small l liberalism, um, as a post-60s phenomenon. Uh, and by that, I mean, it is eminently obvious that this is an exercise of democratic power. Uh, this, <laughs> The states had the power to regulate for the purpose of morals, not even public school curriculum, but like direct legislation that does and, and, and permits some things and forbids others on the pure argument that some things are good and some things are bad. And that the democratic system at the state level in America is where we adjudicate that um, as a body politic. We decide, do we think, you know... <clears throat> Um, excuse me, do we think that mutilating children to in a quixotic attempt to turn them into the opposite sex is good or bad? It's not a question of rights at that point. That is a question of public morals, and the only question is who decides them. And mm-hmm. in our system, it's the state-level democratic uh, system that decides whether the answer is yes or no to that question. And And so it seems to me like people have this very post-60s idea of what liberalism actually requires that would not recognize as liberal the United States in 1961. Um, That seems patently absurd to me. I mean, on the other hand, to me, that's also an argument against like some of the post-liberals on the right, Mm -hmm. um, who also seem to imagine that this kind of exercise of state power is illiberal. Um, And I'll put it this way. If it is illiberal, every society on the face of the earth has been illiberal until like 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, so that's on, on the one hand, I, I think Chris is absolutely right in a lot of those debates. Um, there's also, there's been, uh, there was an essay published by Curtis Yarvin about this uh, in the last week, basically saying, no, we need, we need to create a counter elite and we, we can't do this with this kind of exercise of, of um, bottom-up democratic power. It's, it's destined to fail. Uh, we need a Harvard, basically. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing his argument full justice because I, I don't have the time to do it here. But I, I also think this is sort of... Defeatism can become its own kind of drug or cope, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's true that that being part of a righteous crusade that wins a battle is, is psychologically uh, attractive to people. And that's something to guard against. But it's also true that if things don't go exactly the way you thought that they were going to go, you can be tempted to be defeatist when somebody finds a way to achieve the objective in a way that you didn't think was possible Um, in a way that blows up your theories about what the world looks like. And so I'm I'm finding that now with Bill Ackman and the sort of conversion of of some of these sort of soft left billionaires. Um, I thought that the center left was lost. I mm-hmm. I thought they were always going to roll over for those to their left. They were always going to imagine that the landscape of scary conservatives was worse. They were always going to, um, you know, I, I just I had very low expectations uh, for that part of the, the, I guess the IDW left. Um, What's happened with Bill Ackman? He seems like genuinely open-minded and he seems like he's going through a sort of political conversion on the basis of realizing the depths of radicalism 
that he didn't realize it until it really touched him. And people will say, well, okay, it's not that hard to know that Harvard is completely hollowed out and ideologically corrupted. It has been for, for decades and decades. Yes, but it's also easy for me to imagine that somebody like Bill Ackman thinks, well, yes, Harvard leans left and there's some, you know, crazy blue hairs, but like also, you know, the best and brightest go there and they get their like, you know, business degree and they come and work for me. And like, that's really the important part of Harvard. And yeah, there's some like, there's some crazy people, but they're not really the people generating value in, in the institution. And so you know, like, I, I can imagine how somebody who's not paying that much attention believes that, that essentially mm -hmm. this kind of faux radicalism is a tax to be paid to do real business. Um, and I think if, if a lot of people start to think that's not the case, look, I don't know whether he's going to succeed in his crusade or not, but against Harvard and against these institutions, but that is not what I predicted. Yeah. I would have never predicted this. I'm happy to see it. Right. I'm happy to be wrong on that front. Maybe things <laughs> are not as far gone as I thought they were. And maybe a lot of people really just weren't paying that much attention. Mm. And now I don't know about you. Actually, this is a good question. I wonder how you feel about this, but in the last three to six months, I have actually become more optimistic, even as the political situation deteriorates and the Democratic Party is, insists on crossing the Rubicon with regard to Trump, like monthly, right? And throwing him, Trump had to throw him in jail and gag him. And um, I have become slightly more optimistic than I have been in the past, simply because, and I have some data points about this from the battles with, with um, Ivy League universities to like a bunch of other things. Um, but more than anything, I do feel like there's a vibe shift. I finally feel like there's a battle enjoined mm -hmm. between two sides. And I don't know who's going to win that battle, but at least because what, what really made me sort of feel very helpless, like we were talking about with immigration, is where there doesn't even seem to be in the mainstream any actual fight between two sides taking on, you know, happening mm -hmm. at all. But I'm wondering if you felt a shift in that in that regard. Like I, I really feel like on all these battles, I feel like there's all of a sudden there's there's a weight to the opposition mm -hmm. that that was before completely sort of on the fringe and in my little circles and and not not mainstream at all. So I think it depends on the issue. So you rightly noted that the I think the anti-Semitism episodes across campuses nationwide. I think that was a wake up call for. Um, centre-left liberal types who, who who didn't realise or underestimated the depths of radicalism on college campuses. Another one, another obvious one, is the transgender issue, which has appealed to some centre-left types. Certainly we have seen that in the UK. And when you have those types of issues where you can attract uh, support from bipartisan support basically well not not within the political system but talking about people's political affiliations generally I think you have a huge opportunity and Chris Ruffo I think is a brilliant strategist and that he he lays out the, the three ways that you can apply pressure and the Claudine Gay uh, episode is, is a perfect illustration of all three it's reputational pressure so this was um, Aaron's Siberium at the Washington Three Beacon and uh, the other guy whose name I'm blanking on, who basically were the first to sort of really seriously report um, the, the plagiarism accusations against Claudine Gay. Um, and in so doing, because they were, they were credible, eventually, it took a couple of weeks, but eventually the New York Times, the Atlantic, Washington Post also put somebody on the task. A similar thing happened incidentally with transgenderism it, it didn't take weeks in that in that case it took years for the New York Times to do a big lengthy report um, and that was after eventually it just became very difficult to ignore what was going on in Europe not least because it wasn't conservatives right it was just clinicians of all political stripes who were saying wait a minute here um, and so and so it broke into the mainstream media which is which is the first and probably the most difficult challenge with getting anything to shift. So I think that the issues themselves here had res has had the potential for resonance across um, the political divide. So that's a, that's a big part of it. The second thing, obviously, is financial. And you mentioned Bill Ackman. I mean, that's a huge part of Claudine 
Gay's downfall was the fact that they were able to threaten Harvard with, you know, loss of money. I think with the transgender thing, we'll see we'll see that with lawsuits as well. Um, and then the, the third is political. So this is actually the least useful, in my opinion, precisely because of what you've you've spent uh, podcasts are articulating very well, which is just the whole thing doesn't seem to function very well. But in this case, you had those congressional hearings on anti-Semitism, which uh, which allowed Claudine Gay to sort of hang herself with with her with her own words. Now, I will say that the reason I I I really salute Chris Ruffo for this effort is that it's not that he tried to do this with somebody who was merely his political enemy. Okay. He tried to do this to somebody who is a plagiarist, who is completely unreliable in tackling the anti-Semitism problem on, uh, on, on campus. And also is just a mediocrity. Like why is she there? She's published 11 papers. She didn't even like write them all herself. Like this, this is a, a reasonable target. This is, this is, you know, somebody who shouldn't be in that position of power, who is doing great damage um, and therefore should be ousted. Now, having said all that and, and expressed my admiration, I think this will be difficult to replicate because you need all of those things uh, happening at the same time. And especially you need issues that have the potential to resonate um, with with a moderate middle. And I'm just not sure whether like every issue is going to is going to be able to like tick that box. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very true and worth sort of thinking about what issues are important to do that with. Um, on the other hand, the left doesn't think that way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and one of the things that I think makes Rufo really successful is he's not picking his, yes, he's he's finding a way to argue against certain ideas or people that and then forcing the mainstream media essentially to pick it up on some other basis but he's thinking institutionally about who the targets are and and have has so ironically i i think i think in some way being hyper partisan about some of these issues and this is something i've observed i came back from a school choice conference but this is basically what i was arguing there Things are actually when you hyper partisanize. I don't know if that's a word, uh, an issue, right? It, it, if I had a choice between getting the moderate middle, for example, on taxing universities, my like little proposal that I really want to see happen, um, and making it a litmus test issue for every Republican running for office, I would take the latter, mm. um, because there are so many issues, as you point out, and transgenderism is a good one where you can get sixty, seventy percent of the public to agree with you. Um, but it's just not a priority for either party. Um, that's that's school a very choice, good point. Yeah. School choice was an issue like that for a long time where you have, you know, 80, 90% of our support from Republicans in polls. You have actually pretty decent support from Democrats in polls for school choice. And yet, you know, Democrats will not, very, very few Democrats will vote for school choice. And actually the bigger problem was getting Republicans to vote for school choice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because in red states, uh, teachers unions play in Republican primaries, for example, or, and what, one guy was very blunt with me about it when I used to work on the state level on these things. He said, look, what's going to happen to me? My, my constituents and like, they care about low taxes and guns. Those are their priorities. Yes, they are totally in favor of school choice because I kept showing them all the polling and saying, like, your constituents want this, right? Um, it's like, but but if I pass the school choice program, no one will call to congratulate, like, congratulate me. If I vote against it, not a single one of my constituents will call me up. Um, none of my donors will call me up. And nobody cares, basically, that I did this. Um, but if I vote against it, the teachers unions will leave me alone or they might even donate to my campaign. If I vote for it, they're going to try to fund a primary opponent. It's like those incentives are not, you're not going to get like, you're not going to get what you want. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And ironically, since school choice has been attached to cultural issues, has been attached to the disaster uh, after the pandemic has been attached to the disaster of, of um, you know, the, the, the curriculum. Right. I, all of a sudden, it's a high priority for Republicans. Now, we've brought a lot of moderates in, but in terms of the politics of the matter, 
all of a sudden, it is very unpopular as a Republican to vote against school choice because it's connected to all these things that their constituents actually care about. In that sense, actually from a position of strength, and I think Rufo is very right about this, from a position of strength, you actually do start to get moderates, right? Mm-hmm. When you have a, a sort of one party that is very firmly standing for something, then the debate is between the Republican Party position, the Democratic Party position, and moderates start to to lean, you know, towards the arguments that you're making, if you make that strong argument. Now, maybe they're not all the way with you, um, but it starts to be just like what Rufo forces things into the New York Times. It starts to be something you have to contend with because an entire party says, this is our platform, this is what we're doing. Whereas the left is very good at making the most moderate things that 75% of the public agree with, turning them in the, the mainstream sort of media and political context into fringe ideas. Whereas mm-hmm. they take the fringiest of ideas <laughs> and they're never worried about pushing them. Like, you know, they're never worried about bringing transgender influencers to the Biden lawn to like take off their tops, <laughs> right? Like they're never worried about that. Yeah. No, that I think that is a very good point. And I think that is probably well illustrated by what's happened with transgenders, which is now a litmus test for Republicans. I mean, we saw the response to... Uh, Mike DeWine's uh, veto. Um, th- he's not the first governor to make that mistake. And it was Christy Nome and oh, I forget what year that was, maybe 21, 2021, um, who vetoed the bill, suffered political, political consequences for it. And of course, there are Republicans who um, break from the fold on the trans issue. But when they do, they're kind of put in this box. They're, you know, they, they, they do suffer politically from that. And it's it's through that strength in numbers that you've seen um Laws being laws being passed, but also, as you say, like most Americans are are very open to Republican platform on this. They they they're you know represented by the Republican Party on a lot of these issues. You even saw that with um, DeSantis's uh, Parental Rights and Education Act. You know, like it was there was moderates agreeing with him, saying, "Yeah, we don't really want this stuff in our in our kids' classrooms in their curriculum. Uh, no thanks." Um, so, yeah, I mean, Chris Rufo has a very, very clear um, conception on how to actually fight. I, I think what's difficult is that conservatives by nature just are, are often either not inclined to, to be activists or, or just don't really have what it takes to be activists. Um, because activism does require sort of political, um, like... It, playing dirty, kind of, to be honest, and it requires uh, protesting. It requires, sometimes it requires an, an, a near, like, monomaniacal obsession with, like, one thing. I mean, if you think about how effective the the gay rights movement has been, I mean, the, the only the only equivalent I can think of on, on the right is the pro-life movement, which which has been monomaniacally focused for, for 50 years and in, in, in overturning Roe versus Wade. But that's kind of the outlier. I mean, generally, conservatives are sort of, temperate they're kind of like they they want the quiet life um and yeah it's not it's not a a sudden discovery of of courage and moral principle that where you've seen republicans uh turn on the trans issue it's when they realized it was a winning issue um but it's thanks to people like chris chris rufo that they that they do realize that so um yeah we'll 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 see i mean just let's wrap up with this i'm I'm actually coming to the conclusion that the moderation of that you're talking about, that conservatives, the instinctual moderation that conservatives have is the most dangerous force in our politics right now. And I know that that sounds very counterintuitive, but um, I just came back from Spain. So I'm you know, thinking about the Spanish Civil War. Um, I, I think we're also not like all that that built up energy that we were talking about where people who are being prevented from going to work by protesters who get slaps on the wrist and um, watching their local, you know, CVS get robbed over and over and over again. And eventually like it becomes very unpleasant and looking at the impossibility of buying a house, um, looking at the cost of grocery, looking at like all of these things um, just it, it all. And then looking at the political system and what, what response the political system is making to those concerns. If you have a moderate response to some of us, 
you enable somebody to really take care of it, right? Eventually people get so fed up, and this is really what happened in Spain, right? The, the left was completely out of control. They did functionally steal an election. They just declared themselves the winner of, of an election process, right, that they didn't win. Um, and they were basically turning a blind eye or even encouraging mass violence against the Catholic Church, against, you know, there were nuns like raped and and murdered in horrible ways and like there was no law and order uh in in the society and eventually you 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 get a franco right because the the right the, the right wing coalition was unable to stop the left from doing those things and eventually people turned to somebody who would um and i really do think that kind of dynamic is going on in american mm -hmm. 2024 and i think that probably the our best chance of avoiding a choice between, you know, the tunnel protester left and like, I don't know, a Protestant Franco, um, a red Caesar is probably the victories that Chris Rufo is winning because it makes people believe that the political process can work, mm -hmm. right? That, that you, the, the only option is not to throw up your hand either to like submit to increasingly intolerable conditions or, uh, you know, to become a real sort of radical or violent or riot in the capital. Um, and so I, I, paradoxically, I think the, the reluctance of the Republican Party to get full bore behind it, what we might call a Chris Rufo strategy, I think is very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because people need to feel like there is some response from the political system to the, the problems that they are confronting every day. And when they don't feel that, Eventually, the the danger of radicalism on on both sides, I think, is is very high. Yeah, well, well said. Don't disagree. <laughs> All right. Well, Maddie Kearns, National Review. Thank you so much for for joining. High noon. Um, we are we're back. We're in this somewhat new format where uh, you'll see Maddie again frequently. Fortunately, she has time. She carves out a little time to uh, to talk about things like this uh, from her schedule over at National Review, where you can read her work. Uh, Maddie, thanks for coming on. High noon. Thanks for having me. Um, High Noon with Ina Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. I do not have my script in front of me, so I cannot read you the whole thing, but we would love for you uh, to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Acast, uh, Google Play, YouTube, or, um, or IWF.org. Uh, as always, be brave, and uh, we'll see you next time on High Noon.